Okay. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. This is the Knowledge Daddies podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, my name is Sean Barry. If you haven't checked it out already, guys, please like, share, and subscribe on our YouTube page, youtube.com slash knowledgedaddies. Other than that, guys, this week's episode of the podcast is really, really a great one with Chef Tom. We have a really fun discussion of how he got into cooking, why we all love food, the difference between, you know, like a fancy gourmet meal, and it's just, it's a really good time, really good conversation. We go into his, you know, commercial fishing. He's a really interesting guy, one of our, easily one of our best guests so far. His episode comes out this week, this Thursday, How to Fail at Making Pasta. It's really, really fun. Please check it out. It's a lot of good times. Other than that, enjoy this week's episode. Hey, Sean. Hello, Andrew and Oscar. And everyone, welcome to the Knowledge Daddies podcast. Yeah, guys, if you haven't already, please subscribe on YouTube and Spotify and Instagram and, uh, yeah, at Knowledge Daddies and just do it all and leave messages and comments and all that stuff. Share with your friends if you like us and want you think we can make your friends laugh. That's what we're here to do. Yeah. And guess what? Today we have a very special guest. He is from episode three, Chef Tom of at Meatball Place. Which, if you're listening to this, is already out now on our YouTube page. So go watch that and come and listen to this. Oh yeah, baby, baby. Actually, no, it's it's not coming out till next Thursday. So this will be out Sunday. Yeah, all right, you're right. Yeah. But... <laughs> <laughs> so Tom, but... we are doing so well up until that point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We can do it again because Chef Tom's said he's running 15 minutes late. Okay, so no big deal. What yeah. about this? What did everybody have for dinner? <clears throat> we were talking about that. Before. Yeah. Right. <laughs> now, now that I'm on the podcast. It's, uh... we, it was very boring, so we'll try to say it more interestingly than we did before. Okay, say it interestingly then. Oh, my God. I made, Frankie came over. I made her a lovely meal. Um, I made her a bison steaks. And uh, salad with uh, I make this vinaigrette where it's like plum vinegar, like Japanese plum vinegar, and sesame oil, and 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 um, red pepper jelly, which is like spicy and sweet, and a little salt and pepper. Mix that up in a bowl, get it perfectly dressed. Then I um, yeah seared the steak. I made potatoes. Honestly, the potatoes were the best part because I slow cooked them in the oven and they were almost like mashed potatoes on the inside. And we had that with butter and a slice of lemon and onions and tomato. And it was mwah. And I got this wine, this little Austrian red wine. And it's fucking delicious. You should swear less. You need to put the F word in there. Come on, let's be a cleaner podcast. Sean, are you did you convert to Mormonism, Sean? Uh, well, no, Jehovah's Witness stopped by the house and I had a good chat with them. Learned all about Jehovah and, and where to witness him. Yeah, what did you have for dinner? I had some hamburgers. You had the Jehovah's Witness for dinner. <laughs> I cooked up the Jehovah's Witness for dinner, ground them up into little, little meat patties. <laughs> I put some, uh, some mozzarella cheese on them. And then I put a little caramelized onions. Mm. And I had a little uh, 
little A1 sauce on it, too. Ooh, that sounds delicious. Yeah. And mommy made some uh, roasted red potatoes. Oh. Yeah. Basically, like, actually, this is a fun little trick. If people like French fries, which who doesn't, roasted red potatoes are basically that, but like a thousand times better for you. Okay. Really? Yeah. They have the crispness of a, like a, of a French fry, but like the, the less salt and disgustingness of, of, well, a potato. I got, excuse me, I'm going to excuse myself for 30 seconds because my light, my lighting is bad. And so is yours, Sean. So. I know, it's fun though, <laughs> but I don't have anywhere else to go. I mean, I can lay in my bed like a weirdo. Well, I had wings. I got some wings delivered to me and it was delicious. What kind of flavoring? It was just hot. <laughs> it was hot. Spice. But it wasn't that hot, really. Mild, medium, hot, you know? Yeah, it was hot. And I had um, some apple pie, crumb apple pie with it, with some French vanilla ice cream. Mm. And oh man, oh baby, that hit the spot. Oscar, you know, I got some ice cream I'm about to fucking whip out. Later, don't, man. don't eat ice cream on the podcast or when we're doing Zoom. Look stuff. at that, baby. I got some. I don't like the Talenti. I don't like the Talenti. I like the, I like certain flavors. I like the, I like the Mediterranean mint flavor. I'm a fan of that. Yeah, that's good. I, I I got it once. I just did not care for it. And yeah, most of them aren't great. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, but Oscar, guess- Oscar eats like ten gallons of Ben and Jerry's a week. So. Yeah, Oscar, how many yeah. how many pints of ice cream a week do you think you eat? Like two to three. Well, right. time we do is Zoom. Yeah. So yeah. That's like four times a week. Oh, every time I do Zoom. I, I guess it's sometimes it's four, yeah. <laughs> hey, man. There's worse things to do four times a week. There is. Like eating, like eating two pints of ice cream four times a week. That's true. That would be much worse. Yeah, twice as bad. Yeah. This podcast is just dying right now. Math. <laughs> <laughs> you know who has energy today? Sean. Oh. I know. I'm feeling good. I had I had a productive day. I, uh, no, what'd you do? I got the tire in my car replaced. Mm-hmm. I uh, helped my brother send out a bunch of... I helped out his business a little bit. We'll discuss when we get to... Actually, he'll actually be a good guest for the podcast when we get to that. Yeah. Just running out of up magazine and whatnot. I uh, went to the gym. I went for a long... I got up at 7 a.m. today. Wow, Sean. Why would you do that? Uh, this because like they're my parents doing construction in the house, and the guy just started hammering at 7 a.m. But I got up, damn it. I could have just rolled over and fucking shouted at him. Yeah, didn't that's nice. Uh, of you. That's that shows that shows improvement of character. I, I want something to report. I don't think I might be a manic depressive. I've, not, I've noticed some traits like that, and I've never gotten diagnosed. I'm like, <laughs> fuck, can you just like, get that? I thought you were like born with it, but. <laughs> uh, you catch it? Yeah, I think I could because I've never been like this before. Like last week I was a fucking grump and now I'm good. Yeah, I think it's probably because I had a rejuvenating weekend. Yeah, you were away, you saw some old friends, you got out of your parents' house. Yeah, that helps. I mean, being being your age and being back at your parents' house can be enough to make you depressed. 
yeah, no, that's that's really what it is. It's just like I because I see because basically I'm like there's like a handful of other people who are still like doing this, but like most of my friends at least have a an apartment to themselves. Like, but like you know, I'm I'm happy to be doing you know the creative things I want to. I just wish they had paid off economically <laughs> so yeah. I could live in not in this house. I can be in New York City. Hey man, get doing cool stand up and stuff. I've been where you are at older until I mean, I was just living back at my mom's for six months recently or nine months. I don't even know how long it was. And but it didn't hurt as bad because it was like a decision, a temporary decision. Uh, but yeah, man, I think I think it'll you'll you'll get a job, and I think I think you just gotta fucking be in a certain mind state where you're just like working really hard at every single thing you do and then shit comes to you. I mean, once I get a job, man, I'm like, I, I know I'll be good. I'm like, I, I can feel, I can feel it. Yeah. I can feel it. Feel, feel it in the loins. Honestly, have you screwed up your new job yet by being a weirdo? <laughs> no. Well, just on day one. Hello. 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 I'm Oscar. I am Oscar, friend of Andrew. Well, <laughs> I have something I, I want to put in there before I uh, forget, uh, but I got Roy Lotz's book. Ooh, I love there. the cover. Right? Yeah. Their Solitary Way. It's on Amazon. All right. I'm going to buy it. A lot. Do you know who uh, did the illustration for the cover? Um, that was me. Uh, I went <laughs> into a time machine and uh, did some old paintings. No. Uh I don't know. It doesn't say. Uh, it looks that like it, find out. it looks like it's a famous painting. Look, you're gonna you, you have to buy it to find out. I believe it. You want to have, have this? Can you give us like the first paragraph out of the book to entice our listeners? Yeah, I like that. You, you have uh, the right lots. We talked all about being an author and whatnot. Now Oscar's about to give a dramatic reading of the first paragraph is his, his book. There, sorry. Solitary way? Their solitary way. Their solitary way. All right. Preface. Don't read the preface. Joseph Zorn was born in 1950 (laughs) to a famed Austrian. (laughs) He doesn't know the word. He doesn't know. Philologist? Spell it out. Philologist? P-H-I-L-O-L. Oh, G-I-S. Philologist. You don't know what a philologist yeah, is? No, phil- philologist. Oh. Is that falafels? No. Yeah. It means they... No, they, it's understand, like... They study guys named right. Phil who laugh, who type in laugh out loud in text messages. Philologist. No, I'm pretty sure it's somebody who's, like, like just studies, like, literary stuff. It's like, like a I, philanthropist, but more funny. Like some, It's like someone who, like, reads into old, like, scriptures and stuff and, like, what does this all mean? Oh. Um... Joseph Zorn was a born (laughs) was a born Joseph Zorn was born in 1950 (laughs) to a famed Austrian philologist Ludwig Zorn after a highly unusual and arguable traumatic childhood he graduated with top honors from Riverbend University in 1972 skip to the middle skip to the middle go to the last (laughs) Uh, all right even now, through the din of time and the noise of age, I could still hear the voice of our cook calling us to dinner. 
<laughs> I like the that. word dinner would travel through the trees of our state where we could be found on any summer evening. Wait, is this that's, first, that's, is all, this that's all I'm doing because I'm, I'm butchering it. Yeah, clearly. That was, good. <laughs> so that was apt. That was an apt passage for tonight's podcast. Yeah. Sorry, we're dinner time. Talking about food. In just a second with our guest. Sean, what, what makes a good meal to you? Um, the people you share it with. Ah, uh, the people you look through and and yeah. while you eat. Yeah. No, I mean it's like anything. It depends, I guess, what you're in the mood for. You in for something sweet? Are you in for something savory? Are you in for something delectable? Some of that umami flavor? Ooh, mommy. Mommy. Yeah, that's Good a Puerto Rican. That's a Puerto Rican term. Umami. Um Oscar, how about you? What makes a good meal for you? I like to say uh, balance, you know. So um, you want to have sort of, you want to taste the spectrum, you know. You want to have something that tells a story. You want to have something that, you know, could crunch in a figurative sense and maybe in a literal sense. Something that's smooth, but, you know, sometimes it's a little rough. Something that brings you somewhere, you know what I mean? Mm. You have any idea what I'm talking about? Brings you somewhere? Like where? Are there, are there any foods that make you like think of your childhood? Oh yeah, I was just gonna say that because Dave Chang, what he would always say on his podcast was good like a really good novel food is completely different, but also somehow still makes you think of something you enjoyed as a kid. I agree. Yeah, like uh, I don't know what a good example of that. You know, David Chang to come on the on the show. Yeah, sure, maybe. Um, dear Mr. Chang, dear Mr. Chang, I mean it's possible, and I have his like assistant's number and his producer's number and all that. Yeah, just give those things to Oscar, and we'll have him write. Drop. <laughs> yeah, uh, name drop. But no one asked me what I think makes a good meal. No, I mean we got the important people's opinions, but. Listen, this is what I think. I think something where you can taste the freshness and the, the essential flavor of the ingredients. I love that. Uh, God damn it. I was, I was going to finish my sentence, even though Tom joined the room, and then, and then he left the room. <laughs> he just left. How are you doing, Tom? What's up, guys? How you doing? Hey. I'm good. How are you? Welcome to our podcast. Way too dark and ominous in this uh, in this light. You're pretty dark. You do look like you're in witness protection. Okay. That's much better. That's yeah, much better. there you go. There we go. <laughs> What's Welcome. up, boys? Uh, not too much. We were just before you got in. We were actually talking about what makes a good meal to you. Like I, I, I posit the question to you: what What do you look for in a meal? God, that's an interesting question because there's a time and a place for all food for me. Mm. Um, Bad food still takes precedence sometimes. I mean, every now and again, you want that, you know, combo number four from Wendy's with spicy chicken, no mayonnaise. Oh, I uh, love Wendy's. Come on. What's better than that? Yeah. yeah. You know, but it's all about expectation of value. When you go out and get something to eat at any point, what am I paying versus what am I getting? Right. So our job in the restaurant industry is to always exceed that perception of value. So when you walk out, I don't care if it's a dirty water hot dog or a $1,500 steak dinner, 
when I leave, what I pay has to match the experience that I had in the restaurant, if not exceed that. Right. And it doesn't always have to be food, right? It can be ambiance. It can be exclusivity. It can be a, a bunch of things, right? Well, that, that's, listen, food is so, we are so deep in food. And I, and I say that with, you know, all the respect in the world that wasn't meant to be dirty by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> you know, we, we, eat, we eat food not only to satiate ourselves, but we eat food to you know, celebrate occasions and, and have these familial events that we're working with. Food is just so important to us as a culture. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, man, like there's all sorts of different reasons people eat. And I was talking to a couple of restaurant buddies of mine this past week and, you know, with the technology that's coming out and all the rest of it, it's like, how much more dining will there actually be? Will we get to a point where there's a supplemental pill that you take every day that just takes dining away from the general public? Mm. For me, I could never get into that. There's too many memories. There's too many things attached to food that I'll never be able to get away from. Yeah, I mean, it's almost akin to saying, like, we're going to download our consciousness into a machine and not have emotions anymore. It's that same kind of thinking. I, to a certain degree, yeah. I mean, listen, is there is there a chemical response that happens when you eat something that you have this tied-in memory to? Sure. I mean, that's that's part of what makes food so romantic and beautiful. But at the same time, food is what sustains us. We wake up every day and we need to, you know, bring in X amount of calories, to you know, then continue our day. So it's not something that we can just give up on completely at this point. But you know, wh- where's is there a balance? I don't know. I for me there is. I, you know, I need to enjoy both ends of it. Yeah, and I also feel like food, being that like we're a more and more urbanized population in the world. You know, more and more sure. people living in cities. It's one of the few things that still tie you to nature. It's one of the few things that yeah, you make, make you think about the earth and the, and the weather and as, as forces that are beyond your control, but still worthy of being um, not prayed, but like appreciated. Sure. I mean, not for nothing there. I am very fortunate that I get to work as a commercial fisherman in my off time and it's very, there's a lot of value to seeing where that food is coming from. Oh, shit. You know, I, I didn't know you fished like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm still I'm oh. the comeback episode. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Andrew, you're allowed on the boat. The other two, I'm not so sure. <laughs> Sean was the one who made the best pasta by far, though. I know. He did. Despite my best efforts. Dude, I appreciate you, but you might just be ballast on the boat. No, that's fair. I'm not. I'm not. I'm. I'm really more of a land-based guy than a than a seaman. You know, I just I'm meant to stay here. I like watch you guys from the shore while I drink a margarita. I'm just. I'm raising a hand. Did you just call yourself a seaman? Uh, yeah, we can move past it. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I prefer. I prefer single sperm spermatozoa. That's what. Listen, I what the, however you want to define yourself, that's fine. Yeah. But, but Chef Tom, so how did you get into fishing? Like, is that a family thing? What is that? Yeah, I've been fishing my entire life. You know, it's, it's, uh, not only is it for me part of, you know, my culture and what I do, um, but it's something that's so super sustainable to kind of get into. And, uh, it's, it's definitely something that's been fading among the younger population. And it's, I always get great joy if I go out fishing and I see a you know, father and a son or father and a daughter and you know, they're teaching them how to 
you know, how to be out there and how to fish. And then it's, it's not necessarily the fishing, but the next steps that people take. Okay. So we've caught this fish now. What are we doing with it? What is your heritage bringing to what this whole thing is? Are you roasting your porgy hole? Are you filleting your sea bass, turning into fish and chips? Are you taking your striped bass and you, whatever the hell you're going to do with it? So how does your culture impact Damn. that industry? And that's, that's a very fun thing. I want some sea bass fish and chips. I've never had such like bougie fish and chips before. That sounds great. <laughs> sounds good. Dude, sea bass for me, sea bass, sea bass and blackfish are my number one, number two fish on Long Island. Mm. Striped bass falls in at a solid number three. But um, yeah, if I could, uh, if I could live my life eating sea bass, uh, sea bass fish and chips, I'd, I'd be a happy camper. My, my dad used to take, take me fishing and uh, I don't really like to say he taught me fishing. He taught me how to not catch anything. That's what he taught me. Well, that's uh, a big part of fishing too, man. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So Tom, what, what are you fish? You said you fish commercially. So are you exporting the fish out of state? Are you using it for restaurants locally? What is, where's that fish going? So uh, very fortunately for me, I got hooked up with a buddy of mine who, uh, who holds a couple commercial fish licenses and I have the good fortune to be able to go out and fish with him and put fish back into the market. Mm. Um, it's a blast. It's something that uh, I, in my wildest dreams, I never could have imagined that I'd be sitting here going, okay, well, I'm a executive chef and I also get to catch fish in my part time and send that back into the market to let it kind of do its thing. So I, I'm a very, very lucky guy. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I like, there's just certain skills that, I mean, I don't know if it's a gendered thing, but I just feel like touch me in a deep, deep place, like making a table, like cooking, but also like farming or like making your own food supply like that. Those things are so vital to like our ancestral DNA that that you can't do it and not feel a certain thing that you maybe have never felt before. I'll tell you right now, that was my pandemic project this year was to get into farming. I've never done it at all. And, you know, this year, I mean, food service really took it hard and it gave me the opportunity to have the time to sit back and go, okay, I'd really like to try this. Um, so I tilled my own garden space this year. I, I, I planted uh, probably 10 different varietals of food and it was a, uh, it was a lot of fun and it was really rewarding to sit back and go, okay, well, this is the food that I made. And to be able to take that food then and listen, fresh cucumbers are fantastic. Tomatoes are beautiful in season, but then to take those things and pickle the cucumbers, can the tomatoes. Um, you know, I, I have jarred up eggplants and peppers and hot mm. sauces. It's just been a really, really rewarding experience. What do you do with like a preserved eggplant? To be honest, I pickled them in a little bit of curry, mm. um, oh, and they've just—they've just been this kind of like fun little accoutrement to go along with any kind of charcuterie board, or um, just this little pungent bit of flavor to go uh, with anything that just needs that little pop of color and you know a little, a little bit of love. That's all. So they still have their skin on. Yeah, yeah. I did Japanese eggplant for this. So it's they're little tiny varietals. They're purple and white, so they kept the skin on them. So I can pickle them. They—they they turned out great. When I, when I was like 18 years old, I spent a month and a half on a Japanese farm in, in Kyushu, Southern Japan, just because I needed somewhere to mail my debit card that I lost. <laughs> and man, that gave me appreciation for like how hard labor is 
on a farm like because they didn't really use any mechanized you know stuff they like weeded by hand and everything picked by hand and everything on a, on a pretty big scale and it was backbreaking labor and the grandma who was like 77 years old was just like doing laps around me <laughs> i'll tell you i'm very lucky i have I live on about a half acre of land. I'm on Long Island. So listen, the property taxes here are fucking crazy. Can I say fuck on the podcast? Yeah. 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 yeah perfect, perfect. Awesome. Um, <laughs> so it's crazy, but I have this spare plot that's just under a quarter of an acre. So this year I'm going to actually take and till that whole part of the land and put in a communal garden for my neighborhood where it's something that, hey, guys, listen, I'm going to grow all this shit. I'm going to put a little box outside. And if you guys can come support me for seed money, water, whatever it's going to be. But I just want to be able to give back to my community a little bit. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, food is community when it comes down to it. And I think I think America would be such a more community-oriented place if, like, there were community gardens everywhere, you know? I don't just disagree with that. I, me and my neighbor, we trade produce back and forth. And this whole year, we trade produce back and forth. You know, I had extra hot peppers. He had extra, um, you know, that basil. I had extra zucchini. He had extra uh, chilies. I mean, we just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Whatever was in season, we would give to each other. And there's something very powerful about that. Yeah, it's beautiful because you you're sharing an experience even when you're not together. You're you're like, oh, this is where this came from. I'm thinking of this guy. Oh, he's eating this too. Like we know what this tastes like. Well, that I mean, that's the power of food, right? I mean, all of us have these little subliminal, uh, you know, things that go on in our mind about how our food experiences have always gone. I mean, listen, the big problem that I have at that meatball place is everyone on Long Island thinks that they're grandmother's meatball recipe is the best of all time <laughs> i got it i got it like cool awesome. that's all just tucked into their dna yeah and it's hard to try you know it's really hard to try to compete with that and you shouldn't because i can never match the experience that you had at your grandmother's house having those meatballs for the first time mm. the way that you felt the way that the salinity on your tongue, the way that all of these things came together, the dopamine reactions within your brain. I can't match that in a restaurant setting. And if I'm asked to do so against the memory, I'll fail every time. Right. So that's something for me that's very, very important in food is, hey, guys, listen, I'm coming out here. I'm not trying to compete with what was going on at grandma's house. I just want to give you a great experience. And how can we do that? Right. And you're, you're probably, cause you have a lot of different types of meatballs that grandma's not cooking, right? My grandmother never made a Buffalo chicken. Meatball. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lamb tzatziki meatball. A, uh, oh my God. I'm just, we just got done with the corned beef and cabbage meatballs. Nice. It's amazing. People love corned beef and cabbage for like nine days. <laughs> <laughs> And they're like, no, 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 I'm fucking done with it. We're, we're done with St. Patrick's Day. Rip the flags down. Corned beef and cabbage is dead. It's heavy. Uh, yeah, I, I got sick of corned beef and cabbage. Sick. I mean, quick. Uh, did you know, Chef Tom, that if you order, like, delivery from Amazon Prime, that if you tell them, like, uh, it's, I just, uh, you gave me too much meat in the corned beef and cabbage. Do you get it for free? <laughs> it's fucked up, but it makes sense. 
Because, I mean, it's Jeff Bezos, man. I don't feel bad at all. Well, I wonder where that money comes out on the back end. Yeah, I mean, it can't go against it can't go against the managers of Hope. Maybe it can, I guess. I, I was going to say, that's that's what we don't know, is how deep all that stuff goes. How much you heard in the little guy? Yeah, right. yeah it's possible. Right. Andrew. Yeah. Well, and you and I, you and I know about the little guy, right? Yeah, yeah. We're, we've had a lifetime of being little guys. <laughs> yeah. Just tiny little boys trying our best. There's actually a there's there's an athlete inside this pod. Uh, we're, we're we're making shirts for us that say former top athletes as <laughs> as part of knowledge at Eddie's brand. Is it, that's what I, I want with bomber football? I used to I used to I used to that. Yeah. That but like just going back to food, that wasn't like one of the best parts. Was the Friday nights before games. So we had a big, gigantic team meal. I mean, it was usually just some sort of pasta and, you know, high things hiding carbs and stuff to keep us prepped. Up. But it was just like a, it was that communal team experience of like, you know, in high school, somebody's mom making the food. And then when we got to college, I mean, it was like still like the chefs at the school. But like it was just like a, that just that extra little level of bonding. I said jokingly before we started, like we asked, like, what's the best part of food? And I'm like, it's the people you share it with. I think that adds a whole other layer because I mean we've all been animals and just eaten some McDonald's in the car before, but it's not as good as a sit-down meal. Right. That and that that speaks to the whole experience of food and eating. And I'm not saying dining because we all have to eat every day, right? It's not just going out to eat and doing what you're doing on that end. We all have to go and have these machinations that we do to get ourselves fed every day. And a lot of times all of the things all of those things play back to what we did with our family. As we were kids, and there's a lot of it. I don't want to get into the you know the Freudian aspects of you know food and family. Uh, tits. Just say it, tits. What are, are you talking about me? Or are you talking about my mother? Just talk to me. I'm just saying tits, man. And I appreciate that about you. This guy gets light. I actually, I watched a TikTok video today that some guy was like, only 20% of the world's cultures think tits are erotic in any, in any sense of the word. And they actually look down on us for thinking they're sexual. Well, I, I don't appreciate that guy because I think my tits are phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if I'm being rated on the daily on my tits, I think I should be okay. <laughs> nice. It's like my tits, my fried chicken, and my mac and cheese. Pants there. Um... <laughs> nice. Oh, so Chef Tom, I actually wanted to know, like, how did you get into being a professional chef? Like, what was that process like? So, that's an interesting question. So I was, um, I was 17 years old. I was working at a local mom and pop Italian joint, and I was a. Busser, runner, sometimes server, whatever it may be. And one night I got in a verbal altercation, which turned into a physical altercation with one of the Ecuadorian prep cooks. And I looked at my boss and I said, fuck that guy. I'll cook better than him every day of the week. Well, to my surprise, my boss fired him. And the next day I was on as the prep cook and started to cook on the cold line. So that was my introduction into cooking. But let me back up a little bit because they're, and that whole thing is crazy. But my, my father, who was a school psychologist, actually did clam bakes and barbecues to supplement his income, you know, going through, you know, working in schools as, as a younger man. But I, I remember very vividly 
picking the beards off of mussels and mm. uh, scooping you know, pounds of steamers into uh, you know waiting dishes with drawn butter and paprika mm. and you know slashing lobsters in half. You know that my, my essence was always in food. God damn! Mm. I, I want to go to a clam bake so bad, but no one invites Jews. <laughs> I don't think that's the reason why you're not invited. I think it's because it's stuff like that is why you're not invited. <laughs> Maybe. I'm trying to get Chef Tom to invite me, but it's not working. <laughs> <laughs> let's change subjects. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> you, so let's talk about, I think a little bit like just pandemic in the restaurant industry as well. We've been kind of getting dancing around a little bit. It's like, we're talking about how it's kind of destroying that dine-in thing. Like I heard uh, uh, Jeff, uh, what's his name? Chef Chang on the podcast of some podcasts a while ago talking about just how the demand for delivery is just expedited so much. Like restaurants are getting more creative and trying to, you know, I mean, like Italian food's always carried well for some whatever reason delivery, but now other like I have like really make that push like deliver still restaurant quality food while like the thirty minutes it takes to get someone's house. Well, and that's a, that's a really really uh, important question too because as we deal with you know. Uh, carry out and and the third party apps being able to take over most of the business that we're doing, mm-hmm. it really comes down to what travels well, what doesn't travel well. I mean, you take anything that was you know, for for me, steamed items, saute items, they can travel to a certain degree. Anything that's put in a deep fryer, you really can't travel with. It doesn't travel well at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's put us in a difficult spot. But you know, with the pandemic kind of waning a little bit or it seems to be waning a little bit which is really really important for us um we think we're getting back to the point where people are going to be coming out and they're going to be coming out in hordes i mean i can tell you on the day-to-day i take a lot of phone calls uh, of people who are recently vaccinated who are looking to get out for the first time so I'm me personally, I'm hoping that it's like Sodom and Gomorrah. We open up and just people come pouring in through the doors um, and we get back to, you know, we're not going to get back to what we were a hundred percent right away, but it should be coming. Yeah. Um, and now with the, you know, the influx of people that are dining in, it actually gave us opportunity to sit there. And I know for, uh, for Farmdale and for patch of meatball places, we run two separate ghost restaurants out of each kitchen. We do a barbecue concept out of Farmingdale and we do an empanada concept out of Patchogue. And with the third party apps, it's been very easy to promote those ideologies and, and hopefully get some new customers in and eating the food. That's awesome. Mm. I hope that I hope that happens because your food is so good at that meatball place. I mean, we went there once. We got to try one meatball, but that meatball was so goddamn good. And I can yeah, only amazing. imagine the rest of the menu is, is just as good. Uh, we're very fortunate too. You guys had the ability to eat down in that private room. Mm-hmm. Um, we're doing a chef's tasting down there. It's a 25 course chef tasting. Wow. And it's just, for me, those 14 seats are just a blast to work with. Like it's a, you know, actually cooked for people and, you know, th- there's very little rules or function. It, it's, it's all about whimsy and whatever we can put out that day. So um, it, that's a chef's dream to be able to just cook your food and cook the things you want to cook. Yeah. That's, that's so beautiful. I mean, I thought about, cause I've heard other chefs talk about that idea of like, you know, making a lot of money per head. And so you can just cook what you want and like have an intimate experience and not feel like you're just like, you're basically a human factory. Um, and I kind of, I kind of tried to think what would, cause I do stand up comedy. What would that look like for stand up comedy? Like what would such a, 
uh, manicured, not manicured, but like personalized uh, niche show be like, if you're like, like imagine Dave Chappelle doing a 50 seat show. Sure. What would that look like? You know, and how would he take what chefs are doing and apply that to comedy? Well, it gives you a lot more. Listen, at the end of the day, you still need to give the customer what they want. And you need to take care of the customer. But it gives you the ability to sit there and go, okay, I'm going to try some things. And if they work, great. And if they don't, there's something else coming right behind it. Mm-hmm. That we can sit there and go, okay, whether it's, it's the joke or the dish, it worked, it didn't work. Well, fine, sit back, relax, because there's something coming right on top of this that we think is going to be just as good. Um, and that's something I say to my guests all the time. I'm like, guys, if you don't like the course, push it away. There's something else coming on the back end. Yeah. Which, which brings me to my next question. Like who are some of the chefs that have inspired that, you know, for you, that type of um, tasting menu and, or just chefs in general that you look up to? Uh, there's, there's a bunch. I mean, listen, I, I always owe a debt of gratitude to my father for, you know, what he brought to my culinary career. He, he would drive me crazy from time to time because we worked together for a period of time. Um, but his love of food is fanatical. He's that traditional. My father looks like Joey Buttafuoco. I mean, he is, he is that Italian guy. John um, doesn't know who that is because he's too young. I have an idea. Is the guy in uh, the thing? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you learned from Vincent Pastore to you know, lie. <laughs> it's called acting, Chef Tom. R- no. Right, 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 right. I know nothing about that. I, I, I wasn't on the episode. Yeah. Um, oh. but, you know, nothing. So my father was a was a super influ- He still is an influential person in my life in terms of my food career. It's fun to go back to old family recipes and and make that for people and make it the right way and say, Hey, listen, this is something that I grew up with. Enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I make a very simple, my, my family had a very simple dish of spaghetti, fried squash, olive oil, and great cheese. And it was, it's so funny. I was watching on TV, Stanley Tucci is doing this new TV show about food in Italy. And he made that same dish. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Holy shit. My family has been making this for years. But it's just this lovely, lovely combination of great flavors. Where's your family from in Italy? Uh, there's some from Naples. Mm. Uh, there's some from Sicily. So they don't get along much. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, yeah, they're, uh, that, that's all second and third generation. I mean, my, my family's been here for years. Yeah. But yeah, listen, man, I've, I've been very fortunate to have some great food mentors in my life. Mike Maroney from Maroney Cuisine in Northport was so influential to me um, and so important in how I learned to cook and how, how much care someone else could put into someone that they didn't know all that well. Mm. And Mike always took care of me. And I really, I will, to this day, Mike tragically passed away a couple of years ago. Um, I owe a lot of my culinary ability and my culinary thought process to Mike. Yeah, there's something, there's something I won't say saint-like because there's a lot of the cooks who are, you know, or they're, they're a rough lot historically. Sure, yeah. But also historically, in like Zen tradition and Zen temples, the the chef who cooked for all the monks is often considered at least 
if not more enlightened than the master, because they're actually applying that. They're actually applying compassion. They're not just talking about it or thinking about it. They're on a day-to-day level doing something for people. Well, I mean, that's deep as fuck. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, I, but I don't disagree with it. You know, yeah. For me, and, and again, I, I had multiple mentors. I, you know, Mike Maroney, my father, Irv Brower, um, you know, uh, Tom Schrodel to a certain degree. You know, th- there was all these people that I worked with who were supportive in different ways. And I had to take from each one of them what they would give. Um, but at the end of the day, the biggest thing that anyone taught me about food service is, listen, you need to care about that individual customer first. Mm-hmm. Like once you get to the point where at this 35,000 foot view and you're looking down going, okay, I'm making these big decisions on 400 people a night, 800 people a night, 1200 people a night, whatever it's going to be. It gets very easy to be jaded about the single customer that you're having a conversation with. Okay. So every person, when they walk into a restaurant, they need to be your priority every time. And it, it's, it's hard because we get lost in the minutia of it, right? I, I always sit there and go, okay, out of the general population, let's call it based on 100 people, 1% of that population is going to be batshit crazy. Not the regular crazy, not the medicated crazy, just batshit crazy. Yeah. And when you're dealing in a restaurant that you're dealing with 4, 8, 1,200 people, okay, well, now that's 4, 8, 12 people that are batshit crazy that we have to deal with on any given night. You can't worry about that person. Mm-hmm. And that person will worm their way into your brain and ruin your night. Well, it's like doing stand-up where you see the one person who's not laughing and you focus on them. And that's like a horrible thing that a lot of comedians, myself included, do. And they're right. just like, why can't I please that person instead of noticing everyone else who's enjoying themselves? What's it like when somebody's like, you know you made something right, and they're like, yeah, I, yeah. can I speak to the manager? Just like that. Well, well and, and that, dude, that happens all the time. You know, a yeah. big part for me is to sit there and, you know, I, I truly believe in going to the customer and be like, hey, listen, what's going on? You know, and, and there's something that's going on in their mind. I'm not sure what it is, but I need to sit there and believe that that customer has a problem. And I need to listen to them for a period of time. Okay? And I do a lot of front of house managing and I'm happy to go out and talk to guests too. And, hey, guys, what's going on? Are you happy? You're not happy. That's fine. What, what can, how can we fix it? Mm. And one of the big principles that I always buy into is no matter what it is, fall on your sword and just apologize to the customer. Hey, listen, you're not happy. I don't know why you're not happy right now, but you're not happy. And that's important to me. Okay. How can we fix whatever's going on with you and move forward? Because listen, I want you to like the food. I want you to like whatever restaurant that I'm working at. I want us to move forward and have a good time. Yeah, but isn't there a part of you who just wants to go, fuck you, get out of my restaurant? So <laughs> at, at this point in my career, when I was a younger chef, yes, 100%. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you have to realize that all people are going through different shit different times, right? Yeah. And they're probably not bitching about you. They're bitching about something else that's going on in their life. Absolutely. So back off. Let them tell you what they need and, and move forward from there. Because I can't get in the business of telling people how to be happy. That's not my job. Right. My job is to put out that food for that 99 people out of 100. That's going to be great every time. Can I deal with the one person? Yeah, 100%. That's, 
that's part of how I live in my industry. Well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I'm, I'm still drawing analogies to comedy because it's like when you have a heckler, a person who's drunk or whatever, they want to be the center of attention. They don't think you're as funny as they are, whatever. You do have to give them the rope to hang themselves. You do have to extend them every courtesy. And then once the rest of the audience sees that they're the asshole, then you can be like, hey, go fuck yourself. Get well, out of my But that's the thing. You guys have that ability to sit there and hang them in front of other people. We don't. Because sure. every, every table is a table unto itself. Now, I see it all the time where there's a problem customer who the rest of the table knows they're a problem. They'll take care of that problem to a certain extent. Mm. Um, but it's never something where we can do it. We have to let somebody else do that. Right. Unless they're causing such a hubbub that they're, they're disturbing other customers. Obviously. Then, you, then you can just poison their food. <laughs> I will never admit to that online. <laughs> already stuff we have to cut out of this so. yeah uh, Oscar had a question for you <laughs> I guess I did because he just hasn't said a goddamn thing well yeah I, I worked in the food industry a little bit so I'm relating to this uh, um, idea of dealing with customers that are unhappy of course I worked in the capacity of uh, delivering food so it wasn't as much uh, you know uh, cooking um, but what, what, what was it like? I mean, the, the work ethic is, is so intense and, uh, I imagine, uh, as, as you live, like you get a rush from like, just all the like business and like all the things you have to do. And that helps propel you throughout your day. Because I see all of these cooks who are able to cook, wash dishes and go out and serve, like pretty much like run the place. Um, all by themselves sometimes and it's just like you must like get be able to like what makes someone able to do that is there like a rush sort of adrenaline rush that <laughs> was the most of, rambling ass question i've ever heard <laughs> it is. I'm asking, essentially i'm asking is there a lot of cocaine is there a lot of cocaine <laughs> you ever see the chris farley skit when he interviews people on snl that are really famous yeah. like, do, you, do you remember that that was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Was awesome. <laughs> I have to look that up. It's like he's like he's interviewing whatever, like uh like Christopher Nolan, and he's like, you know, in Batman where Joker did this and then Batman did this and then everything blew up. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of my question. Andrew kind of put me on the spot there. So kind of right, dude, it. that's fine. That's fine. Um, you know, for me at 38 years old, no, there's not a lot of cocaine in my in my life at this point. Um, yeah, there's there's an inherent rush to the the uh, crazed capacity of whether it's and, and I'm very fortunate I got to do both. I was I was a bartender for a lot of years. I'm executive chef for a, a number of years. Um, there's an inherent rush that happens when things are going right. And it's, it's, it battles somewhere between your ADHD and your OCD where you're completing tasks very quickly and you're completing them in an efficient manner. So yeah, I still find that very, very attractive. A lot of times I have to pull myself back from those situations because they're, um, I have staff that is doing that. I can't step on their toes and they need to be able to do it by themselves without me being involved in it. But I can't tell you how many times I just want to hop either on the hotline, expo line, cold line, bar, it doesn't matter. I want to be a part of all that energy and adrenaline that's being pushed through a kitchen. And I think that's something that's very, 
and, and rightfully so, romanticized in the industry. You know, we have this, this, you know, this war man mentality where we sit there and go, okay, we've, we're pushing through this and it's hard and it sucks and we're going to do this, but it's attractive. We, yeah. we don't, we, we don't not like what we're doing. So, mm-hmm. But you're, you're the head chef, right? Or you're the executive chef. What is your, your title exactly? My title is executive chef of that meatball place property. So right now I have two restaurants, two ghost kitchens and a VIP room that I run. Yeah. So you're basically the general, you're basically general MacArthur, you know, you're running every, you can't go to the front lines. You can't, you, you can't put yourself out in front of the troops. You gotta, you gotta run. I mean, you, you do have to see that if Harahito's on the front line, you got to come out there and meet him with a samurai sword, but you know. Yeah, but I, I, I disagree with that to a certain extent. Like I'm the guy who I want to be washing dishes next to the dishwasher. Right. I'm the guy who, you know, and for lack of better terms, I had someone shit on a seat in patch on last week. And I'm not letting my front of house manager who was a woman go out and clean the shit off the seat. This is my job. Wait, God. what happened? <laughs> yeah. Dude, dude. A whole different world. But what I'm saying is my job. <laughs> I want to know that story in so much detail. That, but I, 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 I wish I had more detail to give you on it. <laughs> but my job is to be support for the rest of the staff. Yeah. People look at that business pyramid, right? And it's like, oh my God. So we have the bosses, senior management, junior management, and then everyone else on underneath running it, right? That's not the way the pyramid works. The pyramid is flipped upside down. Mm. Ownership supports senior management. Senior management supports junior management. Junior management supports the staff. And however it can bleed down, we're the ones that are held accountable at the end of the day for taking care of the well-being of the restaurant. Okay, so so my job... Go ahead. uh, I was just going to say you're more like uh, ancient Rome-style general, you know, where you're actually leading everything on the front lines. And you're the Caesar... A little bit too. Well, I, I do like Caesar salads, although I, ha- I haven't had a salad in a while. It's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I made. I appreciate such, that from you, bud. <laughs> I made such a good salad today. Do you do you ever cook with um, plum vinegar? I fucking love plum vinegar. Me too. That's my shit, man. As a marinade, but also as like a salad dressing. Oh, it's the best. So now, are you talking about a balsamic plum? So something that's satin cask and. No, I'm talking about ume plum vinegar, like Japanese plum vinegar. Like the oh, pickle, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pickled plums. Yeah, no, I love that shit. Yeah, it's the best. Oh, um, I have a question. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Make it a sauce. good one this time. Uh, it's a good one. Okay. Putinesca sauce. I'm, I've been, I've been, like, I tried it once and I loved it um, out of a jar. And I think I want to go for, like, trying to make some Putinesca sauce. Uh, do you have any suggestions when it comes to that? Did, did we talk about this when you guys were there? I don't, no, I don't think we did. The story of Putanesca? Yeah, it's a horror. It's a horror. You did. It was not correct. Co- correct. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the source of the, uh, the, the women of the night. And uh, forgive me, I think it was Sicily. It might have been Florence. But what would happen is they make this very pungent sauce with a lot of vinegar, sugar, tomato. And that they would hang that sauce in their windowsill, and that would let the sailors coming in know that they were willing to take care of whatever problems they had. Mm. Ah, 
It might have also covered up some other smells. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you said it, they hang it in their window, I imagined it in one of their stockings, but that's not exactly. No, no, no. I meant more like pot of sauce on, on the windowsill. Yeah. But you had this, you know, beautiful a caper and olive and roasted mm. tomato and ton of vinegar, ton of sugar. And I still make puttanesca to this day. I'm mean, for the VIP room at Farmingdale. I did a, I was doing this beautiful local monk, monkfish puttanesca with mm. uh, golden raisins and capers. Ooh. It was just delightful. I feel like yeah. raisins work perfectly. I've never had raisins in such a, a pungent sauce, but that sounds amazing. Well, think about it. I mean, listen, you're looking to balance certain things, right? Sweet with salty, vinegar with mm. fat. And if you can get all those things kind of working together, that's the essence of making great food. Yeah, yeah and you got capers. I didn't even know capers would go in, in uh, Putinesca sauce. Oh, yeah. tra traditionally, olives, as it kind of Americanized itself, people were starting to use capers because they kind of mimic that salty flavor. They were brine. You know, and it was something that, you know, it, it worked colloquially, you know, that we're not, the, the wonderful part about food is it changes every step that it takes. Mm, yeah. I, a, a big story for me is always people think that corned beef is Irish. Corned beef isn't Irish at all. Irish used to buy the corned beef from the Jewish delicatessens in Brooklyn and lower Manhattan because they were trying to buy ham and the Jewish um, vendors didn't buy pork. <laughs> so they saw this as the cheapest dish that they could buy and put it out for their families around around this time in March. Wow. I didn't know that. Mm. Yeah, I didn't know that. Um okay, Chef Tom, we're 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 about to wrap up. I wanted to ask you one last question. Um besides what do you have to plug? But this is the last fun question. Um okay. I wanted I wanted to know like if if you've tasted anything recently that have has kind of like surprised you, that's kind of like you weren't expecting in a good way. Wow, that's such an interesting question. I mean, th th there's always little surprises that you find out there in food. Um, I, I hate to plug a big corporation, but I was in Disney World a couple uh, about a month ago, mm -hmm. and I'm in this. Hollywood studios and I'm in this back lot. My girlfriend and her friends are having fun. And I got this stupid egg sandwich with, and not thinking too much about it. I'm like, my God, I I'm going to get this and enjoy it. It's going to be what it is. And you know, it's $13.95 for eggs. And I'm, I'm okay. Cause I'm a little bit hungover and we're going to make this happen. Right. Well, been there. You've been there more than I have. <laughs> <laughs> Long story short, in this pita with this beautiful chipotle cheese sauce, um, wrapped sausage, a little bit of scrambled eggs, I'm sitting there going, my God, this is fucking delightful <laughs> for what I need right now in my life. And I think that's an important lesson to people in food because there's a lot of people out there who are just looking for the best, the best, the best. But there is no defining the best. It's the best at that time and the right. best in that space. Um, can, can I drop a quick story? We have, we have time? Yeah, of oh, course. Yeah. Of course. Time. So uh, Hurricane Sandy was uh, 2012, I believe, right? And I lost power at my house. I lost power at the deli that I owned at the time. Uh, and I was out of power for, I think, five or six days. And I went to a local restaurant. That I, I love the guys there. But I don't frequent it as much as I do. But I knew at the time they had power. And I was fucking starving. I was working 14 hour days and all I wanted was just lights 
a TV, and something to eat. And I had, at that meal, a dozen beautiful oysters, linguine white clam sauce, and New York-style Italian cheesecake. Mm. And that will always be, to me, this beautiful meal that I had. I've had, I've had better oysters. I've had better linguine white clam sauce. I've had better cheesecake. But all of the events coming together were so perfect that that was one of the greatest meals of my life. Yeah. Mm. I mean, how could it not be? You know, you're coming off this big disaster where even the slightest bit of luxury just feels like royalty, you know? Feels well, like- I think that's that's the extent of food and food services that we have to sit there and go, okay, what's going on? What are the culmination of events that goes into dining? And how do we be better at all of that? And if we can roll that down the road, kick that can down the road, there, there's a hope for dining in the future. Yeah, I agree. On that note, I mean, this was a great episode. Um, um, I just want to know, like, what do you, what are you want people to check out? You know, obviously that meatball place in Farmingdale. What else? I mean, listen, that meatball place, Farmingdale, that meatball place, Patchogue, Gata Empanada, which is our ghost kitchen out in Patchogue, Portly Porker, which is our ghost kitchen in, uh, in Farmingdale. And the VIP room is a really special experience to me that, uh, if anyone wants to come check it out, it's a blast. It's a blast. It really is. Um, and to me, it's it's something that I I give back to someone who taught me a lot about food. And it always makes me happy to put together a VIP dinner because it reminds me of, of Mike Maroney and what he did for me. Yeah, that sounds that sounds amazing. I want to go. Yeah, I want to go too. I'm I'm I'm, I'm down. Don't come. come. Yeah. All right, so you heard that first. If you're anywhere near Long Island, go. Go now to, to um, Chef Tom's, any of Chef Tom's establishments, and especially to the VIP room for a 25-course tasting menu. That sounds amazing. Treat yourself. Definitely. Um, all right. Well, Chef Tom, thank I mean, you, thank Jeff. you thank you so much, man. And It's fun. Um, I can't wait till your episode comes out. Um. The, hey, I'll be soon. Next I'll week. be soon. What's the date of that? Does anybody know? Uh, uh, whatever next it's, Thursday is. Well, that doesn't help anyone. It's uh, uh, April Fourth, April Fool's Day. These were clowns. April Fool's Day. <laughs> April Fool's Day. There you go. April Gabagool's Day. <laughs> Boys, thank you very much. Thank you for everything you did. I'm happy you know how to make pasta now. It's <laughs> <laughs> me too. All Thanks right. to you, Chef. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. All right. All right. Have a good night. And Andrew, cut off the podcast where we could do our final plugs for ourselves. You can follow me at BigBear63 on Instagram. Andrew at NDrewSteiner on Instagram. Oscar at Desiderio.Oscar on Instagram. Follow us at Knowledge.Daddies on all social media platforms. Other than that, guys, we'll see you next week.